Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And, uh, and here at Stuff from the Science Lab, we are big fans of Mary Roach. Who, uh, if you're not familiar with her work, she's a science writer, and she's written uh, the book Stiff, Spook, Bonk, and now uh, Packing for Mars. The Curious Science of Life in the Void. Yeah. And that was released this, uh, this summer. Yeah, her, her three previous books are all great. Uh, Stiff deals with um, the story of human cadavers. Interestingly, when we interviewed her, she was saying that she didn't think that book would sell. Yeah, yeah. She Well, she's been surprised at... At how uh, some of her, her follow-up books didn't like just instantly surpass that one, uh, because you know cadavers, okay. Then the second one, Spook, was about um, um, science and the supernatural, which is also a really great book. I read that one. And then the third one was about sex, uh, Bonk. Right. And uh, and she, she was sure that one was going to be the big, uh, you know, the one that's going to be even more of a hit. But uh, but Stiff has remained like the colossal bestseller of the of, of her work so far, and they're all they're all great. Yeah, 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 we highly advocate reading them. Um, so we did have the chance to interview her, and uh, we're going to share some of that interview with you guys today. So I thought one of the things that she did really well is just kind of breaking down the mythology of the astronaut and making astronauts into just regular old humans. Here she is talking about the first astronaut she met. I remember um, the, my first astronaut, you know, I was down at Johnson Space Center, and I had never, I'd never met an astronaut, and it was this guy, Lee Moore, and he's just, just this regular guy, he's wearing kind of a, you know, a Hawaiian shirt and chinos and brown shoes, and, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to meet an astronaut, and I meet this guy, I'm like, oh my God, they're just people, for starters, you know, so the whole, like, mythology uh, just doesn't, it, you know, you meet, you meet them, and right away you realize they're just, uh, they're just people, and then you start to learn about what they go through. Um, all the things that you were saying, plus some of the, you know, the kind of worrisome physiological changes. And, and it's, it, yeah, it very quickly ceases to be this high glamour job. Yeah, and then you asked her if there was one particular example of a space absurdity that really just made her decide, yeah, this is my next book. This is what I'm, I'm going to explore next. Uh, I think there, there, there was that paper I came across fairly early on when I was Pretty sure I was going to do it, but not entirely sure. I came across this paper from 1964 on uh, space nutrition and yeah. related waste problems, and it was these guys sort of thinking outside the box about Mars. And they were, you know, because you're, it's a two to three year mission, and food is you can't pack lots of delicious food and you know launch it for a crew of six for three years. So they were thinking like, well, we could we could create clothing out of edible keratin fibers that they could wear for a while and then when they were done wearing it they could eat it <laughs> and then there was the the guy who was saying that um, uh, well they could uh, um, actually be uh, eating pieces of the spacecraft we could you know make use edible proteins for some of the uh, interiors of, that we won't be needing after we've you know been on the surface of Mars when we're coming home we'll just eat that <laughs> eat that module and you know just this sort of uh, plus the you know the, the very very extreme recycling that would have to be done in terms of um, drinking your own sweat and urine. Uh, that, I think at that point I was like, oh yeah, this is this is Mary Roach country. 
So, of course, we had to ask her if she was a, a space geek going in uh, to writing the book or if she became one in the process. And it turns out she was a little bit of one beforehand, but uh, but uh, in writing the book, she found herself like watching NASA TV all the time. So, uh, so here's what she had to say about that. I, I was a space, a little bit of a space geek. I never watched Star Trek, and I wasn't a science fiction reader, but I, I did a story at this, for Discover Magazine years ago where I went to the neutral buoyancy tank, which is that just, it's like the size of the Gulf of Mexico. It's not, it's huge, but it's this huge swimming pool that they submerge pieces of the International Space Station and then have the astronauts rehearse, really, a dress rehearsal wearing their actual suits, um, rehearse all the moves that they're going to do. And I remember just being kind of overwhelmed by the delightful geekiness of it all. And, you know, and I am kind of a geek. So um, NASA was kind of the magical kingdom in a way. It was like, wow, look at all this stuff. You know, just, there's just all manner of things you never would imagine uh, existing or down there. We were talking about how the public's perception and enthusiasm for space exploration has kind of waxed and waned over the years. You even ventured to say that it might be a little boring now. Uh, or it, it definitely, yeah, definitely, it's been boring uh, for for a while there because you know it started out really exciting with space exploration. You know, these people are going out in the space, they're getting stuff done. They're cowboys, you know. And then there was this long period of kind of, to most people, I think, kind of boring science experiments in space. So yeah, we had to ask Mary where where she, where she thought we are now and where we're going. Yeah, and how we could turn things around for space exploration. I think we're at a point where we could turn it around and make it not boring uh, by going somewhere new. You know, I think that the the moon base um, plan, the plan to go back and, and send people for six months or more to live on the moon, um, I, I think just because it's the moon and people feel, the general public feels like, well, we've we've been there. We went there seven times. Um, why Why are we going back? I think that um, to just simply to go somewhere new, if not if they, you know, the the partisan bickering and the policy and the politics can sort of, if they can sort out where they where we're gonna, what we're gonna do, where we're gonna go, then I think you you, you really, and it's somewhere new, you really could start to capture people's imaginations again. Uh, it, uh, it wouldn't doesn't have to be Mars. I mean, a near Earth asteroid, just something that is um, different and exciting for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's still even when we were in orbit. Um, a lot of really, really interesting, cool stuff was going on. It just doesn't always get reported that way or um, reported at all. So we uh, we also ask her uh, how astronauts have ha- have changed, or rather, the role of the astronaut has changed uh, again from the the cowboys of the right stuff uh, to the more you know the the more of the the scientist astronaut we have today. Um, so she talked a little about the, about that about the clash between the the old school and the new school scientist. They couldn't be more different. It really was a 180-degree turn on, on, on what makes the perfect astronaut because you got the, you know, early on, one guy, so it didn't matter if he w- didn't play well with others. You have one guy in a, in a mission that's a few hours long, and so what you want is somebody who's aggressive, brave, unfazed by high risk, uh, able to deal with an emergency, calm in an emergency, that, that sort of the right stuff, which became very much the wrong stuff by the time we get to the shuttle era where you've got, or the ISS even more to the point, where you've got six months and longer missions and, and five, six people, then you really don't, you don't want that kind of personality. You would want somebody who's, you know, the, the list of attributes, I love some of them, like 
ability to form stable and quality interpersonal relationships. So you would think like John Glenn, can you imagine Sarah, well, that being even the word relationships entering into it? Uh, you know, flexibility, fairness, empathy, all these things that you don't you don't really associate with the right stuff. But then, you know, going uh, going into the future, uh, if we do go to Mars, then you then you kind of want both of those because it's going to be a bigger crew. So you want people who get along well in a group. But then again, you also need a self-starter and somebody who can deal with emergencies with sort of uh, leadership and calm, you know, that, that whole right stuff thing. So I don't know how they're going to find these people. I mean, it's kind of a superhuman combination. People are usually one or the other. Speaking of the perfect astronaut, we went through this crazy list of physiological traits um, that some space agencies think are important for astronauts to have. And it was, it was, a, it was a funny exchange. Um, <laughs> so here's us chatting about how the astronaut might turn out if all the various random traits were taken into account. Yeah, there's all these. You could get, um, well, and they're, they're talking about you, you, you should look for people whose intestinal flora do not produce methane because that's explosive. So you got to look at what kind, what their farts contain. You don't want somebody who snores because that wakes everybody up. You don't want someone with bad breath. That's the Chinese space agency rule. Also, African-American women, uh, well, women in general, because they consume less oxygen than food. African-Americans, thicker bones, density. So you want a deaf-mute African-American woman who does not snore and doesn't produce methane. <laughs> and then on top of that, the right personality. Of course, as uh, you know, science writers and science editors, we had to ask her about her uh, her method uh, in in writing this book, and really in, in kind of writing all of them. And uh, what's amazing about her writing is that she's not just summarizing journal findings or, you know, kind of twisting the research into a new light, or even. Um, I mean, she is very much translating it into layman's terms, mm-hmm, yeah. much as we hope to do. But um, well, she's, but also she's getting she's the people a, in the flesh. She's yeah. talking to them. She's making them come alive on the page. Well, yeah, and also Mary Roach is very much a character in her own books. You know, it's like you're really right there with Mary in each of these as she goes out and talks to these people, you know, and uh, and really learns, you know, what the dirt is on everything from corpses to uh, uh, going into space. Yeah, so here she is talking a little bit about storytelling and her method of putting together books and why science isn't boring. I mean, when I contact people, frequently they say, oh, well, I'll send you a paper and we can talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always having to write back and say, no, it doesn't really work very well for readers that way. I need to actually come visit you and be there and see what you're doing and have a scene with people who are talking to each other and doing things. And even and that isn't a, a, a traditional book narrative. Usually that's a through line all the way through the book, and that is... Yeah, that's another way to do it and probably the best way. But even just having a chapter by chapter, a setting and a narrative framework to hang the facts on helps a lot in getting people interested in science because people have this notion that science is boring, which kind of blows my mind because science is, science is, it's you, you know, it's your, your body, it's your backyard, it's your dog, it's the weather, it is, it is everything and how, how could you possibly think it's boring? But, you know, it's often among scientists, because they're at such a high level of understanding, it, it is boring to the general public to pick up a paper from a journal. So you, you do have to, as a science writer, uh, which is a title I, I guess I wear, but um, you do have to find ways to 
make it accessible, make it real, and storytelling is, I think, the best way. Yeah. She really got some amazing details on stuff that we never hear about, at least not regularly, and and not certainly not stuff that NASA broadcasts. Um, pretty much the messy realities of motion sickness and going to the bathroom in space and all sorts of good stuff like that. So I was asking her if astronauts were relieved to finally lift the curtain on the reality of life in space, the sometimes smelly reality of life in space. Well, the well, cosmonauts in general are just very straightforward, just lay it on the line kind of people. There's less concern, I think, about what is the proper thing to say, maybe. So just culturally, they're a little more freewheeling in, mm-hmm. in their conversations. And um, it, in fact, I was surprised by if you sit down and have a conversation with an astronaut, even an active astronaut, not, not retired. It's always easier when somebody's retired. But uh, and, and you talk about a range of topics, uh, not just you know, sex and poop, if, you, if you're having an interesting conversation about larger issues of, of space exploration and challenges, and you, you eventually make your way around to something like that, that's fine. I think what bothers them is when you specifically re- would request, if you were to request an interview specifically about um, sex and space, because that, I think, to them, kind of, it's kind of insulting in a way, like that, 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 that this is the most interesting thing that the public can find. You know, when they do what they do, and a lot of the, um, the research that, that they do, and, uh, and it's, it is interesting in its own right, and so I think it's frustrating when people only ask about those things. So if you, if, if you bring it up in a, in a larger context, they're fine talking about it. And uh, along those lines, because, uh, again, there's this whole chapter just on going to the bathroom in space. She called it the definitive chapter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, if you only read one chapter in this book, you know, it's kind of like it's the one to read. Um, and and I have to you know I have, I have to say I thought I knew a lot about going to the bathroom in space going in because we I, even did I, that whole podcast yeah we did a podcast on it I've written about it and but no Mary had some stuff that I was not prepared for uh, so, escapees yeah I was watching a John Stewart clip she was on a John Stewart and they she's had this everywhere yeah. Whole, yeah she's really been doing a lot of PR for this she was talking about escapees wow so I had to ask her which she thought was grosser um, a phenomenon called. Uh, Fecal popcorning. Oh, that still gets me every time. Or the um, the fecal glove. So here, here we go. Here's what she had to say about that. I think if you're a dog owner, probably not that big a deal because it's really like, you know, those people who go walk down the street with a New York Times sleeve, plastic newspaper sleeve, and mm-hmm. pick up their dog poop, turn it inside out, done. No big deal. Uh, so I, I would imagine somebody who's used to that wouldn't. I mean, it is your own material, which is a little unusual. <laughs> but uh, I think that the the issue with the shuttle toilet was with escapees, as they called it, with little pieces um, escaping and making their way around um, the capsule or the module or the shuttle. In this case, is very dis- very distasteful. I mean, there was there was a mission. I think I mentioned the book where there was sort of dust because the, the material is sort of quick dried and, and the dust would. When the dust came out, you're inhaling that, and that's a disturbing. And also, you don't necessarily want that in your lungs. <clears throat> so I think that that was the high tech. I would guess that when the high tech device malfunctions, uh, it is more. In fact, I know it is because there were people on that mission who opted not to use the shuttle toilet and used the contingency, which was the fecal bags, because of that problem with this. They called it blowback. It was that dust that was 
escaping and um, flying around. I think it was the shuttle. Perhaps it was the ISS. But it, uh, e- either way, they preferred to deal with the indignities of the fecal bag than to be inhaling that stuff. So that pretty much wraps it up. But I do want to end with Mary's take on the future of manned spaceflight. I would love to see a manned Mars mission, partly because, you know, in, what, this is something I didn't realize before I did the book, but every program has kind of been preparing for the next. Like Gemini was just flat out working out the kinks for a moonshot. It was like, let's practice docking in space. Let's see what happens to two people's skin if they wear spacesuits for two weeks without a shower. Let's figure out all the steps here in orbit, and then we go on to the moon. So Gemini was preparation for Apollo. The International Space Station has been this 10-year exercising global space cooperation, all these different nations communicating, participating, uh, lending expertise and funding. And the whole aim of that was to prepare for long-term space, life in space, which was the the whole idea there was um, getting ready for Mars. So to to stop now seems like, well, what was all that about? (laughs) What was the past 50 years about if we're not going to go on to Mars. So, I mean, I know that's not, you know, obviously there's budget issues. It's very expensive. I would love it to be a, I'd love to see it, you know, an international effort where a lot of different nations are contributing money and expertise. And also just everybody on the planet would be watching. It would be kind of an amazing event uh, for the world to witness. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm, it makes me kind of sad. I probably, it probably won't happen in my lifetime. I'm guessing I'm 51 and, uh, you know, 2040, we'd be lucky to have this uh, happening, I think, unless somebody proposes something really radical, like a one-way mission where people go and then just live the rest of their lives there. And because then, you know, the the tricky part is coming back. So there you have it, uh, our interview with uh, Mary Roach. She shared a lot of great stuff and was just a real pleasure to talk to. Uh, Just, you know, she turned out, uh, we were wondering, it's like, oh, I wonder if she's going to be like she is in the book, you know, is it going to be the same experience? And And it really is. She was, she was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, we asked whether she would pack for Mars, and she said, no, not the personality type for Mission to Mars, but a two-week trip to the moon, sign Mary up. After all, she did climb aboard the Vomit Comet, a.k.a. the C9. So I think she's pretty much game for just about anything, including topics. So yeah, if you've never read uh, anything by Mary Roach, check those out. Um, she also did a TED Talk um, having to do with uh, with like 10 like things about sex uh, that came out around the time of her bonk book. So uh, also you so do a TED Talk search on that or a YouTube search and you can uh, you can find that. Yeah, and by all means, if you've read her or if you've read Packing from Mars, uh, tell us what you think on Facebook. We're Stuff from the Science Lab or on Twitter, we're Lab Stuff. Or you can always send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.